This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usim, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Ann and John McNulty Leadership Program here at Wharton. And tonight I am joined by my dear colleagues and co-host Jeff Klein, who is the Executive Director, and Mike Usim, who is the Director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management at Wharton. Hello, Ann. How are you, Mike? Great. Good to be here with you tonight. Very good. So great to have you, Jeff. How are you tonight? I'm great. In the first hour, we have our guest, Stanley (laughs) Silverman, a nationally syndicated writer on leadership and corporate governance who is here in the studio. So we will speak with with Stanley in just a moment. And we're going to talk about why change can be good if it's handled properly. We can also talk, Mike, about a subject that I know is dear to your heart, and that's about boards of directors Mm. and uh, how they should respond when allegations of harassment, sexual or otherwise, come to light. So we had lunch at the Union League and talked about a subject dear to our hearts here, and that was leadership because Stan is a retired CEO who now has begun a journalistic career. So, Stan, maybe tell us a little bit about what you're working on in your writing that you're doing now. Well, I'm, I'm actually in my third career. My first, <laughs> okay. my first career was rising up uh, through my uh, previous company, PQ Corporation, reaching the level of CEO for five years, going through 11 jobs, never thinking I would stay, but I kept on uh, being promoted and uh, giving more, giving more money, so I stayed, and uh, we took the company uh, through the time I was there from a small commodity chemicals company, operating in three uh, three countries: the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, to a, a worldwide organization that operated in 19 countries mm-hmm. with 58 plants, with really three core businesses. So we expanded the uh, business quite a bit, and then it was sold in February of uh, 2005, and I stepped down as CEO, and I served on a number of boards, three publics, private equity, private companies, trade associations, uh, uh, educational institutions. Um, I'm now vice chair of the board of Drexel University, and I serve on two other boards, which are schools. And three and a half years ago, um, <laughs> after serving uh, for three years as chairman of the board of the College of Medicine at Drexel, uh, I got somewhat, not bored, but I needed a new challenge. <laughs> and um, I went to San Francisco and Silicon Valley with uh, the Close School of Entrepreneurship at Drexel, and I met um, all these entrepreneurs who were doing just great things. We visited Apple, eBay, PayPal. We had um, 16 students with us, and I'm flying back when they're red. I'm thinking, I've got to do something which keeps up with these young people. <laughs> and I asked myself uh, what I normally ask the people who I coach and counsel, what are you good at and what's your passion? Well, my passion's always been leadership. I've always been a pretty good writer as an engineer, which is kind of strange, uh, a strange skill. So I started writing on leadership. Uh, I knew the publisher of the Business Journal in Philadelphia at the time, and I asked her if she would like somebody like me to, to write for her and for her paper. She said, well, let's see. I had 15 articles up on LinkedIn. She looked at them. She came back and said, I need to introduce you to Craig I, the editor-in-chief. And uh, he makes the final decision of what gets in. And to make a long story short, uh, 
he let me start to write. Uh, I did that for about two years, and then I got promoted to be nationally syndicated by the corporation, by the corporate uh, office. And that's what I've been doing now for the past 15 months. So I'm in 15, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm in 43 uh, business journal uh, papers around the country every week. Stan, can I sum that up with one word? <laughs> What's that? Awesome. It is. Oh, thank you. I was going to say, wow. Well, That's my wife right. would, sign, would describe it as being a AAA personality, never sitting still to do anything. Yeah. No, it's but I, I really wonderful. can't. I really can't. So. Yeah. Well, I have. I'll have a follow-up question, but then I'll mm. I'll hand the baton here to Jeff. So, just I found your schedule mm. <laughs> awesome when you shared that with me. Would you just like how do you go about this writing process? Well, I write once a week. Actually, they, they said you can write once a month. I said, I'm not going to write once a month. I'm not going to be established as a thought leader in leadership if I write once a month. He said, well, nobody writes once a week unless you work here, and then you, you write every day, and you got a ton of other stuff you're doing. So what I do, uh, my deadline is, is really 6 a.m. Monday morning. I have to have my article submitted. Uh, I have my own editors uh, who go through it, and we go through two iterations, maybe three, but normally two. And uh, my editor, uh, my corporate editor, um, will have it published uh, Tuesday morning in the business journals across the country. I put it up on my website by 1 o'clock. And by about 2 o'clock, I start getting emails from all over the country and world either saying, this is great, or you got, you're just absolutely crazy at what you wrote. <laughs> and I, answer, I try to answer every single one. So if somebody takes the time to write to me, I will answer them. That's great. Usually within two days. But then I start have to I have to start writing my next article, and so uh, I usually start Wednesday morning. I submit it for editing uh, to my two editors by Thursday night. We finish it up Friday night or maybe Saturday morning, and then I sit on it for a couple of days just thinking about it. And it's never failed. I'm I'm up to I guess I'm over 200 articles total, mm-hmm. but 175 with the uh, Business <laughs> Journal. Wow. Monday morning, I always read it again, and I always make changes. Mm-hmm. unedited so I'm really careful but it's amazing what you think about when you're up yeah. at five in the morning looking at something that you've worked on for the past week why did I write it this way so you change it so whatever goes out is as it's perfect as I can get it because it's out there forever uh, for, till the end of time and you have to stand <laughs> by it and I do everything I write so great <laughs> Jeff uh, Stan that has uh personal meaning for me. I, I actually you're a writer, right? I started my career as you're a journalist. A, you're a writer. Uh, <laughs> and maybe one day at the end uh, we'll get back. This is the holding pattern right now. So we, <laughs> okay. we do radio now. So, um, but you know, and, and for me, I guess journalism was always the power of the, the story, right? And, um, and the different perspectives on that story and the way that you can, you can bring things together. Um, as we think about your story, I want to take you back to maybe a, a younger Stan and a with a question that w- that we ask almost all of our guests here. If if we were able to go back and talk to fourteen or fifteen year old Stan, <laughs> um, did he anticipate the career that that you were just describing with Anne? Well, you never really anticipate a career. Um, you really never know what the future is going to bring you. Yeah. I don't know what the future is going to bring for me next year, or even sure. in two or three months, or next week. Um, but I had a couple of, um, a couple of things that were in my mind. I, I always wanted to be an engineer. Okay. Hmm. Um, and I have a couple of stories at the age of 12 and 13, which today would probably land me in Leavenworth, uh, because of the <laughs> environment we're in. I don't know if I can say that on yeah, air. Yeah, Maybe I, I think should. you can. So yeah. I'll get back to that in a minute. Yeah. 
So I've always been interested in science. I always ask a ton of questions. Mm -hmm. uh, I never believe anything that somebody tells me unless I kind of confirm it. Um, and so mm -hmm. I'm not very accepting of what people say unless I say, yeah, well, that makes sense based upon this other information. So I'm constantly doing that. You're um, very handsome. Thank you very much. That I'll accept. That I'll, that I'll accept. He, he confirmed it in the reflection of the mirror. Yeah, that, I'll, yeah, that, one, I'll, that one I'll accept. Thank you, thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Um, and so when you when you graduate, um, graduated as a chemical engineer in 1969, went to MBA school in 1974. Uh, I took the hard route. I could have taken a couple of seminar courses, but I decided to write a thesis. Uh, I developed the Monte Carlo simulation for an investment analysis, which I guess if you're an engineer or finance guy, that's kind of what you do. But it was right, right up my alley being an engineer. It took two years. We actually used that model in my company to make investment decisions, so I was practicing with it and getting real-life experience. Wow. And that, that really, I, I still use that experience today in terms of making decisions. But And Stan, could, you, could I just ask you to say a couple words about what a, what yeah, a Monte Carlo simulation right. is? That's right, that's right, not all. Oh, I'm no. sorry, I'm sorry, yeah. A Monte Carlo simulation is, for example, let's assume that the capital cost Let's use a better example. Let's assume that your sales in years one, two, and three are going to be whatever number you want to pick. Well, that's a point. Usually, there's a probability distribution around that assumption. And so, therefore, uh, you c rather than input to a, an IRR calculation, an internal rate of return, so I'll, I'll try to get rid of the jargon, internal rate of return, you put in a probability distribution. And so maybe there's 40 or 50 or 60 assumptions. Right. You, can all, you can put all of it in uh, as a probability distribution, and then you run a couple thousand uh, simulations right. by using random numbers, picking off values, and you get a probabilistic curve that, uh, for example, the project has a 50% probability of exceeding a 20% return mm -hmm. and maybe a 10% probability it's going to exceed a... 25% return, mm -hmm. and maybe there's going to be a 20% return that's going to dip below the cost of capital. And so the board who makes the final decision has better data to make judgments on whether or not they want to proceed based upon the risk that this project presents. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. That's right. what I did. Yeah. So Very good. How about before we uh, continue that thread, just let me remind everyone that this is Leadership in Action. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Jeff Klein and Mike Useem, and our guest, Stan Silverman, who is now founder and CEO of Silverman Leadership. Okay, now, but Jeff, you were asking a good question. Did you imagine that you would, you know, the future? And Stan, you said you can never be quite sure, but there were certain things that you were interested in. I had two goals in life. Yeah. And so I didn't have 50 goals. I didn't have a goal every year, or mm -hmm. this has to be my fifth-year goal, because it it's never going to work out the way you <laughs> put it down on paper. I had two goals. The first goal was I wanted to run a P&L. I wanted to be a business unit leader responsible for a profit and loss statement and make decisions necessary to meet goals for the profit and loss statement to grow my business to, uh, to develop technology in R&D, uh, commercialize it, open up new markets, but run a P&L, be the mm -hmm. business manager that ran that P&L. I had that opportunity when I was promoted to be president of our Canadian company, National Silicates Limited, at the age of 37, moved to Toronto, and for three years, I ran a P&L. After, well, after three years, I was promoted back to be worldwide 
business man- worldwide a general manager for Industrial Chemicals Group, which has 65% of the company's revenues under me. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I wanted to be CEO. <laughs> the only two goals I had, run a P&L, be the CEO. And so that gives you a lot of flexibility on how you're going to get there. And I got there for a very circuitous route. Never, I never turned down an assignment. Always was out of my comfort zone. Sometimes <laughs> I failed, but I picked myself the next morning, and I mm-hmm. went back in, and I kept moving forward. And so one of the things I coach uh, students on, and I coach a lot of students on their careers, is you always have to be out of your comfort zone. You always have to be a person that views the world full of possibilities mm-hmm. and opportunities and not the type of person that sees limitations and scarcity because you'll never get anywhere if you're that second type of person. So you always want to move forward. And um, I'm the keynote speaker at the College of Medicine graduation at Drexel University each year. I've done it for six years. And that's the message I give to the students. You know, if you want to do the same thing every day for the rest of your life, rest of your career for 45 years, if you want to do that, that's fine. But if you want to advance and make a difference in this world, zigzag, take a risk, (laughs) get out there and get it done. And then someday maybe you're going to be sitting, standing up here giving a speech to the graduating class like I am, an engineer. So how's an engineer become chairman of the board of the College of Medicine? Well, you zigzag your career. Zigs and zags. And then you're asked to chair to be chairman of the College of Medicine. <clears throat> so that's how I did it. So I've, I've never, I wouldn't change a thing. Change <laughs> so a thing, great. Obviously. <laughs> Stan, let's stay on that, on that very topic. And I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. intrigued by what, what you've just talked through. So I've got a couple of questions mm-hmm. coming on it. But on this issue of uh, getting out of your comfort zone, mm-hmm. we, the three of yeah. us, have often very explicitly, self-consciously mm-hmm. advocated that as a method for leadership development. Mm-hmm. Best way to learn how to lead is to get out there, do it, reflect on it, get better at it. Having said that, um, I'm thinking myself, and my guess is probably a few listeners are too, <laughs> the downside of getting out of your comfort zone, uh, pardon my foreign language here, <laughs> is you can screw up. <laughs> yeah. right. And so work, right. Uh, talk us through how you work with uh, setbacks okay. and all that comes with that. You need to learn how to de-risk your decisions. <laughs> so when you screw up, you're not going to sink the company and you're not going to get terminated. So if you're working for a company where they expect zero mistakes, you're working for the Mm -hmm. wrong company. What the company expects you to do is to make mistakes, but to do do it in a way where you're not going to sink anything. And they're going to, I've made a lot of mistakes, uh, and I was very fortunate I worked for a company that accepted them. But the the best way to de-risk is, Mm -hmm. let's assume you have all of the authority you need to make a decision that's part of your authority. But you think that, there's some risk here. You're not sure of a couple things. You ask. You talk it over with people. Talk it over with your peers. Talk it over with your mm-hmm. boss. And that's a strength. Some people view talking to people and asking them their opinion as a weakness. It's a huge strength. <laughs> and that's how you de-risk your decisions so that when you go forward, you're not going to make – you're going to minimize the time that you're going to make a mistake. And there's a, a great way, if I can take a minute and, and just tell you a story – and so when I, when I was COO of my company, chief operating officer, my boss, the CEO, um, wouldn't actually listen to, to ideas. You, know, you talk with him and you, know, you kind of get shut down. Well, that's not going to work. So I started writing a memo. So he'd come in and say, well, that's really good. I mean, so we, we accepted it. When I became CEO, 
I decided to change that cultural norm. And so let's assume uh, Bill Jones, uh, the guy who ran our chemicals business, would come in to me and say, well, you know, I've been thinking about this. What do you think? And I would say, well, I think maybe we should go direction A. He, if he comes back and says, I think we should go direction B, how I respond to, to him will forever set the dialogue between the two of us. Mm-hmm. I want to say, and I do say, well, why do you think we should go direction B? And we debate A versus B. We beat one up against the other. We bring in other people. We do it for an hour. We do it for a day. We do it for a week. And at the end of that conversation, one of three things will happen. I sustain A, but thank him for B because I even feel better about A right now because we really tested it against the alternative. Yeah. Or I would say, and I, mean, I think B is really good. Thank you. We're going to go B. And now he feels great that he changed the CEO's mind. But more often than not, over the five years I was CEO, we would f- find direction C better than A and B only because we debated it. Mm-hmm. And I would debate as an equal. Um, we rarely made a mistake. We rarely made a mistake when that occurred. So that de-risks your decision-making. That de-risks your decision-making when you debate things, you talk it out. And I had, I had general managers and presidents of businesses all over, the, all over the world. I'd have them in my face all the time screaming at me they needed resources for this or that. I wouldn't shut them down. I would, I would listen. I said, well, justify it, and maybe I'll give it to you. And <laughs> if you can't justify it, we're not going to give it to you. And so sometimes they got what they needed, and sometimes I held firm. I said, no, come back with a better case. We grew the company in those five years uh, very, very significantly, both top line and bottom line. And so the CEO needs to deal with their people as equals. If there's a power differential, you're not going to get the kind of dialogue you need. You're not going to get the kind of dialogue you need. And so that's what I did. That's how we grew the company. Stan, I've got a personal question about the day after a setback. So you've made, let's say you did pick option A. It turned out to be the wrong option. That did happen. Not always, but uh, certainly it does happen. And I can imagine, I can visualize you the next morning. You get out of bed, you have a cup of coffee, and you go to work as opposed to hiding under the covers for the rest of the day. <laughs> so talk a little bit about your – Well, you feel re- bad. Yeah, right. <laughs> Everybody makes the we, wrong decision feels bad. But you have to face it. You acknowledge it. You take responsibility for it, and you move on. You take responsibility for your mistakes and move on. First of all, it generates trust within your organization. If you don't have trust within your organization, nothing's going to yeah. get done. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> so and pick, so, I'm sorry. Well, just to uh, reference that with uh, an allusion to a book that a professional colleague wrote a couple years ago, he looked at a bunch of chief exec, ex- sorry, chief executives who were toppled. Hmm. Uh, usually for good reason. They got in trouble, earnings were down, they got forced out. And an issue was some of them came back and some of them did not. And one of the differentiating factors was literally just the personal capacity of resilience. And I hear you saying you've got a, you didn't use the term, but the next day you lick your wounds. You go back. Yeah, you get back into it. Well, you have to. What are you going to do? Hide under a, a bed for four, four weeks? You acknowledge <laughs> it and move forward. You acknowledge it and move forward. And I'll tell you. That's good advice. When, you, when you're presenting to your board, when you're the CEO presenting to your board, if you make a mistake, acknowledge it, and then tell them how you're going to fix it. Don't fail to tell them how you're going to fix it. Don't say, I made a mistake, and then kind of stop. I mean, that's not good. But you have to tell them how you're going to fix it. And they'll say, okay. 
tell us how it works out. They're very forgiving. What they're not forgiving about is when you don't tell them because then they don't trust you. And once your board stops, stops trusting you, you might as well leave because it's, you're, you're finished. You're gone. So you got to just be open. Yeah. Now, you're reminding me, uh, and I'll need both Jeff and Mike to help me remember, but we had the pleasure of interviewing retired General Stanley or Stan McChrystal, who had that great comment about his soldiers would forgive him for not doing what it was that he thought he could do, (laughs) but they wouldn't forgive him for pretending to be something that he wasn't. You know, yeah. So that sense yeah. of uh, authenticity, really, really so important. <laughs> it is so important. So I, I interview a lot of high-level people. Um, as a board member, sometimes I'm asked by the CEO to, hey, why don't you talk with, with this individual? <clears throat> Excuse me. I only ask a couple questions. So by the time the individual gets to me, they've been vetted for their experience. And so I don't, I don't want to waste time on that. I'll get, a, I'll get a briefing. You can read a paragraph. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, only, I want to know the answer to a couple questions. I want to know, tell me about tone at the top. What does tone at the top mean to you? Tell me about culture. What kind of culture do you want within your organization? Tell me about the people that you're going to hire below you so that when they hire below them, they hire great people who can get results. Tell me how you get results. How do you treat your people? Tell me how you get results. And then I want to know how you're going to inspire everybody from top to bottom within your organization to achieve great things. And we'll talk about that for an hour to an hour and a half. And if I don't like one of those answers, I don't recommend. Because my experience Mm. says that if the person doesn't give you the right answers or answers that you like for those uh, questions, they're not going to work out. That's so great. Well, we're going to take a very brief break. And Stan, you've set us up with a wonderful tease for the follow-up because I'd like to hear more about the tone, the culture, and the people <laughs> that you are ideally looking for when, when you ask and hear the answers to those questions. So I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Jeff Klein, Mike Yuseem, um, and of course, our guest, Stan Sil- Silverman, founder and CEO of Silverman Leadership. So stay with us. Come right back. We're going to continue our conversation. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 111. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Jeff Klein and Mike Yuseem. And we have the pleasure tonight to talk with Stan Silverman, founder and CEO of Silverman Leadership. We've been talking about Stan's careers. He's had three, and we were talking just now about his career as a CEO. And before the break, uh, Stan, you made a wonderful comment about the way that you interview people who are interested in serving on boards, and you're interested in their comments about what kind of tone they like to set at the top, what kind of culture do they want to establish, and what kind of people would they like to surround themselves with. So I just would be curious if you can give uh, an example, no need to name names, but maybe of a conversation that went awry in that regard, where you Mm. knew very promptly that this person was not the right fit. Well, let me, um, let me go back to um, a time when I was a guest lecturer, and the school should remain nameless. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I, a student raised uh, their hand. It was an executive MBA class. And I was talking about uh, the need to follow the laws of the land in which you operate around the world. 
And I mentioned Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, you can't break that, even though other companies from other countries will. But there's huge penalties here. Plus, there's a huge reputational risk, especially given today's um, social media, that you just can't do that. And so one student popped his hand up and said, well, if I don't, maybe if I don't break the law, I can't meet my results. I like <laughs> rolled my eyeballs. I said, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and it's no, really, it's. We you, appreciate his candor. <laughs> you're, right. You're, ta- you're taken aback. And so I had to uh, take a good six or seven minutes explaining to him how uh, people that break the law will never make it. They're not sustainable. Uh, you make you may make your your results this this year. Uh, you may get a great bonus, but if you continue on doing it, uh, you, you are going to wind up in jail, and your company is going to be fined hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's really not a great thing to do, and it's really an excuse for poor execution mm. and poor leadership if you can't make your goal by following the laws of the land. Uh, and you wonder here in the United States, you know, companies every once in a while get caught price fixing. Well, there's huge penalties for that. In Europe, they do it all the time because people don't go to jail. So tell me about the morality and and ethics where, well, we're going to do it because we're not going to go to jail. Well, you don't do it because it's not right. It's just not right, and it's a poor excuse for a leader and leadership if they have to resort to that to make their numbers. So I tend to fire those people quickly. (laughs) Very good. Does that answer you heard your question? That, Mike. Does that answer your question yeah. on that was tone? very good on tone. <laughs> Subtly expressed. <laughs> I'm going to walk into the elevator now. <laughs> All right, Jeff, how about you? Well, let, let's talk a little bit um, more about boards because that, I mean, yes, we, we, were, we were in that um, place, and you have, with the experience that you've had across the boards that you've served on, private sector, um, nonprofit sector, et cetera, how do you? even start to make a decision about whether this organization might be an organization where you join the board? Well, What's your due diligence? Right. Well, as they're doing due diligence on you, you need to do a lot sure. on them. And so the first thing, in fact, I'm, uh, I'm looking at joining a board very shortly, a nonprofit in an area that I'm passionate about. Um, and so what you do, the first thing I do is I look up the board members. Mm-hmm. I look at their backgrounds. I look at the companies that they that they work for. Um, I Google their names, and I see if there's anything out there that's not good in terms of what's on the Internet. I ask people about the organization. I ask how much experience the board has being on other boards. And so this is not an issue with public company boards. These guys, men and women, I use the word guys for both uh, for men and women. Uh, these men and women... Um, are very experienced, and they know what a board member is supposed to do. You go to a private board, and it's a cut below that usually. They Mm -hmm. just don't have the experience. You go to a nonprofit board, and you really have to look at whether or not these folks uh, have any experience. Because if they don't have any experience, they tend to get involved in operations. Mm. And, you know, our job as board members is governance, and there's a bunch of things under governance that you cover, but it's not operations. So you hold Mm -hmm. the CEO accountable for his or her results, and if they don't achieve results and you don't like, uh, you don't like them, you get rid of them. Uh, and some people kind of get involved in, in, the, in the weeds, in operations, which is not our job. We don't work there. So you tend to find out. You mm-hmm. tend to ask people, and you can, you can find out. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people that know a lot of people, and people talk about their experiences on board. So 
if you're comfortable uh, joining, you want you definitely want to join. If in mm-hmm. fact it's in an area where you you have an interest, and you know if you join the board, you've got to show up at meetings, you got to go to the committees, you got to work on the committees, you got to do your job and contribute, or else you shouldn't join the board. Give it mm-hmm. to somebody else. Well, and then let me, I want to ask the question a little bit the other way. If, if you know, for one of our listeners, um, if they are sitting at home in the car and saying to themselves, well, you know, board membership has always been part of my career plans. Um, how do you start? How would you recommend to someone to start building that kind of um, experience or portfolio? They need to network. Okay. Uh, when I left my company, uh, I was on one public board, but I wanted to add to that. And I was also on the Drexel board, so I was on a private, a, a public company, and a, uh, a nonprofit educational institution. I went to the, my first year a huge number of meetings, introduced myself, um, got around to a lot of people, and I also knew a lot of people in the industry. Mm-hmm. So I would say to them, if you ever know of an opportunity that might fit my skill set, send me an email or give me a call. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. People started calling or sending me emails, and out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would just be approached, and that's how I started building uh, my board portfolio. But and once you start, it's it's easier to get the next one sure. yeah. because you get you get to know more people. But you have to get out there. The, the most important thing anybody can do, really, in any point of their life, is to network. Mm-hmm. And I try to teach uh, students this because they're not learning this from school. Mm-hmm. They need to be out networking with people. I network with with maybe a dozen people, new people a week. And I don't mean superficially, but I mean mm-hmm. you really get to know them. And I connect, connect them up with, with people or with themselves or with students. Mm-hmm. And so you build a network, and all of a sudden these opportunities just become aware to you. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, maybe I should, I should call this, uh, this woman who's uh, in a search, doing a search for this type of, of individual. And so you need to be out there every day networking. You don't want to be sitting at home watching TV. You want to be out there networking, networking, networking. And that's what I did, and that's what I uh, would recommend to our listeners. Well, and if if we go back to before you were a member of a public board and, mm-hmm. and involved in Drexel, what were I, – I know networking will be a part of this for sure, but right. what were some of those initial steps that you were able to take to say, well, I might not have the experience, but mm-hmm. I know this is the uh, part of the evolution I'm You I'm get to know to. people in your industry. Uh-huh. Um, and if you're if you're in an industry and you're you're there for a while, you naturally get to know your customers, your suppliers, your competitors. Mm-hmm. You go to uh, trade association meetings. You, you work on committees, even at a low level, mm-hmm. and that's your entree. Uh, that's usually the entree is you're you're, you're going to get it on a committee uh, and you're going to do work, and then you do good work and then you rise up slowly, okay. and then you're asked to chair other things. Oh, would you chair this one? Okay, so now you're a chairman. Then you get to know other people. Mm-hmm. And you slowly build your portfolio of the people you know within your industry. And then when you leave your industry, when you leave the company, uh, that's, a, that's part of your base and you move forward from there. You just keep building, keep building. Great. So you start with those strong ties. and Yeah. And don't be afraid to do the grunt work for a committee, for a trade association committee, because right. that's where you meet a lot of people. <laughs> that's great. Stan, My- I've got a question about networking when the chance of intimidation or the the feel of intimidation is very strong. And I'll, I'll make it very tangible. You walk into a room, 100 people are there. They all seem to know each other. They're in big discussions about whatever. 
there you are, you don't know a soul. So take it from there. That's a group you want to network with, but you've got no opening. Well, you, you pick a twosome or a threesome, and you go up and say, I'm Stan Silverman. I work for PQ Corporation. How are you? <laughs> and if you can't break into the group, you do it again, and then you do it again, and you'll get in. And that's what you do. And then other people join the group, and other people leave the group. But you can't it's, – it's, it's like when you fail yeah, on something, right. you go back and do it again. You're not going to continue to fail. You have to do this. You have to do this. Giving life to the adage you offered up at the first, which is get out of your comfort zone. That is right. getting out of your comfort zone. A lot of people right. feel a lot of discomfort. Um, Stan, just to shift a little bit here, as you have watched people in nonprofit boards, private sector boards, serve well as a board member or not, what do you think defines a really good member of a board, whether for-profit or nonprofit? Hmm, that's a very good question, Mike. Somebody that takes their job seriously somebody that's involved uh, with the organization and gets to know the issues that the organization has, participates in the strategy moving the organization forward, understands the impediments and the obstacles that that organization needs to climb and contributes to uh, the path which leads around those obstacles, um, and just immerses themselves in the very beginning to learn. I mean, mm -hmm. just, just to learn. Meets people in the organization. Uh, now, obviously, as a board member, you can't tell anybody what to do. Uh, and if you're the CEO, you can't tell anybody below your direct reports what to do, but you can listen. And you build credibility by just listening. Yeah. Just listening and asking good questions. Mm -hmm. And then you, you, you build uh, a database on how you can apply to help the company or the organization yep. move forward. Let me uh, shift uh, gears very quickly, then hand the baton back to Anne. Boards are there to, to govern and obviously not to manage. That's the very mm -hmm. definition of why they're on the board. Having said that, are there circumstances where personnel questions ought to indeed come up to the board? So, for example, given our current debate or the, the current attention that we for the spotlight we've got on sexual harassment in the workplace – is this something that should be dealt with by senior management with the board not kind of in the room, or is this something for the board to take notice? That's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it, Mike. <laughs> so let's take um, what's happened at Wells Fargo mm -hmm. or at Uber, uh, and we can go on and on. We can talk about Volkswagen. So let, let's take Wells Fargo, okay? So here you have a situation where for five years, for five years, the head of community banking were, was giving um, uh, unreasonable goals to the folks at the branches. And they had so much pressure that they were opening up false accounts. I think the latest count is $2.3 million. I've written a couple articles on this, but I think $2.3 million is the latest. Can you imagine? They've opened up $2.3 mm -hmm. million phony accounts. Stunning. <laughs> and so some of these folks use the ethics hotline at Wells Fargo to report, which is what they should do public company, it goes right to the audit committee. And thank God we have hotlines. And yeah. as it turns out, and, and we still don't know uh, what the board did with it, but some of the people that use the hotline to report these, um, this fraud were fired. Hmm. And um, I think it was CNN, CNN Money, I'm not sure, I, so don't quote me on that. There was a reporter that kind of dug this out and actually reported on it um, as an investigative reporter. 
And in fact, it was confirmed by the bank a year later that, yes, some of these people were fired. Mm. My God, you're firing people reporting fraud up through Mm. the hotline to the board? What did the board do? Those people who fired can go to jail. This is a federal offense. This is a federal offense. You can't fire people for using the hotline reporting fraud. And so I'd like to know what the Wells Fargo board did in the five years Mm. that this occurred so John Stumpf, the, president, the CEO, goes to the board and says, we have a problem. This is the problem. And the board says, okay, John, fix it. And John says, I will. A year later, he comes back and says, it's not fixed. For five years, it went on. If I was the CEO of Wells Fargo, I expect to be terminated, probably in year two, because I didn't fix it. Yeah. I, I mean, I would actually, I would, I would feel I should be, ter- I should be terminated because you didn't fix it. This is a huge bank. Okay, and then he's, he's cross-examined in Congress uh, and and actually didn't do so didn't do very well and yeah. eventually the board the board fired fired John they asked him to resign but where was the board where was the board mm-hmm. so any board I sit on I want to know how you're going to fix it I want to know how you're going to fix it and God forbid I should hear that people are being fired for reporting <laughs> fraud on the hotline I mean well, you, can ima- you can imagine my action then as a board member. <laughs> Kind of a very tangible follow-on on that. Uh, to put a couple words on what you've said, uh, the tone at the top, the board has to set the tone. The board is responsible for integrity. And then with that as a general principle, translate that on the ground of how you as a board member would help uh, the company, uh, the top executives appreciate those principles. Well, I used to work for a tyrant. Uh, I actually read an article about my tyrant. I wanted to call him a terrorist, but Craig I, who was the editor of Philadelphia Business Journal, said, you can't use that word because of what's happening around the world. I said, well, Craig, what should I call him? He said, call him a tyrant. So I work for this tyrant. And um, he literally destroyed a large operating division of my company. People would not make decisions. They were scared. They were shell-shocked. I got promoted from under him when I went to Canada at 37 to be president of our Canadian company. I come back now as president of the worldwide chemicals business and he reports to me and I fire him. (laughs) I fire him. (laughs) Done, done, and done. (laughs) Yeah, and I I found the very, very best leader within the company to head that division as general, vice president, general manager. And it, it took him probably a year to turn these people around where they were no longer afraid to make decisions. And so because of my experience, I always want to sit well, – I've served on 14 boards. I've always, I always want to sit on the audit committee because that's where it comes to first, ah. goes through the hotline. And whenever I hear uh, somebody complain about a tyrant, I turn to the CEO and say, well, what do you want to do about it? And usually the answer is we're going to investigate it and then we're going to figure out what the action should be. I said, okay, report it back out at the next meeting. I want to know – what the CEO, what the senior leadership is going to do about tyrants, because nobody should have to work for a tyrant. A lot of people quit. I stayed. Um, had I left, I almost got fired a couple times. Had I been fired or had I left, the company would have been deprived of a future CEO that took earnings um, a huge amount up during the terrible years of 9-11 hmm. and the recession of 2002. And so because of my personal experience, I don't want to, I don't want tyrants in the companies that I'm on the board of and I'm pretty tough about that. 
That's great, Stan. Well, first, uh, I want you to know it was Matt Egan, CNN Money, who was the one you who reported. Yes, you. look that up. Thanks to our producer. Thanks to our producer. And let me remind everyone that you are listening to Leadership in Action. And I'm Ann Greenhall here with Jeff Klein and Mike Useem, and we're speaking with Stan Silverman. So, uh, Stan, before the break, you wanted to talk a little bit about continuous improvement. So I want to yes. give you that opportunity. Yes. Um, I used to think that this was the holy grail of any company, and I'll tell you why. Today, I don't think it's the holy grail. I think it supports the holy grail. And just to get it out, I think the holy grail (laughs) is to be the preferred provider of product and services in your marketplace. So you're the company that everybody wants to go to. And then we can talk about how you become the preferred provider. But let's let's kind of put that aside for a moment. And so um, I'm now president of our Canadian company, We had the opportunity to build a small production unit for the pulp and paper industry in Whitecourt, Alberta. And it was a very small customer at the time, but the market was growing, and so we had to be up there. And so we designed the plant like we normally do it. We had like a 12% IRR, which is internal rate of return for those folks that don't know what that is. And so the cost of money was like uh, just around that number, and you don't want to take a project to the board with, with a low return. So I'm talking to my CEO, and I'm saying, you know, Paul, I don't really know how we're going to do this. He says, well, why don't you go back and, 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 and work on this thing? Uh, how many people do you have working at that plant? I said, well, five people, which is the normal number we have all over the world. He says, can you run it with zero people? I said, what? He said, can you run it with zero people? I said, no. Okay, we'll get to that. Can you run it with one person? I said, no. He said, we'll talk about that in a minute. Can you run it with two people? I said, well, theoretically, I guess we could, but we'd have to design everything. He says, go back with your guys, with your team, your production, your engineers. Design the plant. Take everything out of the capital that, um, that was in there. Took it really skinny it down. Think about every part of the process and design it to run on two people and come and see me in two weeks. So I flew up to Toronto that night, met with my guys and the next morning, and we got the return up to 22% by redesigning the process, Mm -hmm. not using technology that we didn't know anything about, but existed in pockets around Mm -hmm. around the world. So we never really challenged our paradigms on how you would build what we now call the ideal plant. So the ideal plant operated with two people. There was so much controversy within the company about going to the board with the economics on two people, we put a third person in to kind of calm people down. We started Mm -hmm. to plant up with two people, first shift, first shift, and second shift, and so one man on each shift, one person mm-hmm. on each shift with a huge amount of technology support, IT support. And guess what? It worked perfectly. <laughs> we added the third person when we added the third shift. Hmm. And over 10 years, the IRR of that plant was something like 31%. It was the highest IRR of any, of any unit. So I learned, I learned that you can move forward on it, but you need to continuously improve your processes. You need to challenge everything. You need to challenge every paradigm. And whenever you're spending money on a, on a facility, you need, to, you need to move it in the direction of what we would call the ideal plant. And so you'll never want to get there unless you build something brand new. But the first month it's operating, there's something new. So that's for the next plant. And that's how you move your technology forward. And you get everybody involved and you empower them in every department, every plant to move their technology forward and to save money. So we would empower our hourly people. So our our 
uh, plant managers and supervisors would become coaches and counselors. Instead of ordering people around, they would coach and counsel the operators to come up with these great ideas. We saved millions and millions of dollars, and it really helped us become much more competitive. And so we went out and got more business because we were more competitive, and we put more money on the bottom line. So continuous improvement is just a key. Mm -hmm. And I tell the students that I coach and counsel, when you go for a job, talk about continuous improvement. I can guarantee nobody else applying for this job is going to do that. They're not going to do that. So you need to you need to read my articles and tell them exactly what I have in my articles. You'll get the job. I guarantee it. <laughs> and it's true. That's great. Jeff, do you have a follow-up? I do. Um, I mean, I, I love the notion of continuous improvement because it's, I mean, it's rooted in learning, learning. fundamentally. Yeah. Right? right. And that's something we talk a lot about on this show and always interested in, in how leaders continued to learn. Right. And I, I know that um, you started out uh, at the beginning of the hour and you said, we're, I want to I always want to be outside my comfort zone, mm-hmm. right? And that's one one source of learning for sure. Um, we talk often about uh, mentors and the roles that they play, um, as well as, you know, formal education programs at, at different points in your career. So I, I just wonder, as, as you look back, um, were there mentors, were there other formal educational things that you were doing which you feel like really had an impact? Yeah, there were a number of them, uh, depending on where I was in my um in my career, um, early on in my career, I had one boss basically hit me over the head with a two by four. <laughs> and he says, you can't do that. You have to act this way instead of that way. Mm-hmm. And I listened. And it worked out just well. Uh, at other times, uh, I got good advice. Don't take this job. It's not going to send you where you want to go. So reject it. Take this other job. And uh, sometimes I would be, be rejected for the job that I wanted. But didn't matter. A couple months later, something else would open up, and it was on my career path to be a P and L manager, to run mm-hmm. a P and L, or become CEO. Eventually, I did it, and so I got a lot of advice from a lot of different people. And uh, sometimes it was pretty harsh advice where I had to be woken up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so, but everybody needs that, I think. Can, can I ask you a little bit about those relationships? Were they um, first? Did they form? You know, kind of organically. And um, and how I don't know, how often is not the right word, but um, you know, but how much um, transition happened over the the course of your career in terms of mentors? Uh, I don't think it was start and stop. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a smooth. Mm-hmm. So I would I, I got to know the informal organization, and every company informal organization really is what runs the company. Yeah. It's not the formal organization, <laughs> and so you get to know people <laughs> elsewhere. And you help them, and they help you. And, um, you know, you just make friends with folks, and especially with senior leaders. Mm-hmm. And they take a liking to you, and they'll say, you know, hey, you know, I think you ought to do it, do something this way. Just, just want to let you know. Well, you're crazy if you don't listen to them. <laughs> and I did. Um, and I do the same thing now. I mentor a huge number of students. Right. Uh, <clears throat> And, you know, at my point in my career today, which is my third career, the only reason I'm on this earth is to make a difference in the lives of others. I've had a great career. I serve on uh, four nonprofit boards. They're all educational because I'm dedicated to that. And, uh, and I write my articles, and I help people every day be better leaders, better entrepreneurs, better board members through how I write. Mm-hmm. So I try to make a difference every day. So when you have a... Um, when you have a focus in your life and you know why you're here, 
It kind of <laughs> helps you fulfill it. Too many people don't. Yeah. I have a lot of friends who retired. They do nothing. They play golf every day. Well, that gets boring after boring after a while. <laughs> and you know, some of them have gone. For, you know, they're in depression. They're being treated for that. Uh, that's not me. Mm, so good. Well, Stan, our time together is coming to a close. But let me ask you to tell our listeners how they can learn more about your work. Okay, the best way to do that is to uh, Google SilvermanLeadership.com, and uh, you'll come to my website. And you'll read a little bit about my philosophy and background. And uh, that site today has 175 articles <laughs> and probably 20 or 30 blogs, which I really need to update as I'm speaking. <laughs> but um, you can you can read me there. You can read me on LinkedIn. Uh, every Tuesday, I post my article. Uh, you can read me on, um, you can follow me on Twitter. And my handle is at Stan Silverman. And um, if you want to send me a note, send me a note. So good, Stan. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us tonight. It was really a pleasure. And stay with us, everyone, because we're going to be talking with Heidi Stam, an executive coaching consultant and former executive at Vanguard Group. I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Jeff Klein and Mike Useem, and you're listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. We'll be right back. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.